Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 21 and reading through verse 38. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Um, getting to our text this morning, chapter 22. I had a really hard time with this sermon. It's, there's a lot, of, a lot of things in this sermon. There's, there's honestly probably four, at least four sermons in this that, I, that we could have pulled pulled from and spent more time on. And so, so listen, like I would say every week, whatever we do up here, make sure you're checking it against the Word of God, but then also take the opportunity throughout the week to study it yourself, to go into greater detail. We've got 45 minutes-ish to, uh, to preach, and, and I know what it's like to listen. Like you hear certain things and other things just go, go past you. Go back and re-listen to the sermon. Go back and look at God's Word and study this. What we come to our text this morning, we, we see a lot of unfaithfulness. We see a lot of sinful intent. We see a lot of failure uh, all in one place, right at the Lord's Supper. This is happening at the Lord's Supper, the, 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 the Passover Supper of the Lamb of God. With, with the very ones whom God had chosen, Jesus had chosen and taught for some three years. These guys were close in to him, but there was all sorts of crud that was coming out of them. The, the disciples have been on a path of discipleship with Jesus um, that's been wonderful at times, and then other times have been very confusing. Literally just could not grasp what Jesus uh, had been saying, and they were going to be almost entirely blindsided by what was going to happen just in a few hours. Totally blindsided. Even though Jesus had told them it was coming, totally blindsided. 
So often the disciples had been lost amid their confusion of what's going on along this path of discipleship, but Jesus continues to gently, graciously, faithfully point them to hope amid that confusion. It seems that the danger of confusion, the danger of faithlessness, even betrayal, are always right around the corner for the disciples. The disciples in that day and disciples today as well. But Jesus does not grow weary of them. He doesn't grow tired of them. He continues teaching, continues caring for them, continues preparing them, continues working uh, to help them comprehend either immediately in this day or in the days to come as he would in just three days time-ish rise again and spend 40-some days teaching them more and more and more. And then, of course, as he continues to rule and reign today, he does the same for you and I. He's patient with us, teaching us, training us, encouraging us. Now, what I want to do this morning is to think together about a few things that Jesus teaches uh, in this kind of climax moment of the Lord's Supper in the upper room right before they leave to go to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus is going to eventually be betrayed in just a few hours. And the first thing that he teaches, first portion that I want to focus on, is this, that there is hope despite betrayal. There's hope despite betrayal. The verses say, behold, this is verse 21 in chapter 22, behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he's betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Now, we were introduced to Judas, if we needed to be introduced to Judas, we were introduced to him two weeks ago, uh, and we know that he'd been following Jesus, uh, thinking that there was kind of a worldly, kingly greatness for him awaiting in Jerusalem. So, so he'd been following Jesus all along the way, and Jesus was saying some weird stuff, like he was going to die and whatever, but I, I don't know what he's talking about. We're going to enter Jerusalem, and we're going to sack Jerusalem. We're going we're gonna to take, begin taking over the Romans here, and now that it was not happening, Judas began to reject him. He had been resisting him all the way along, like we had said a couple of weeks ago, and to whatever extent rejecting his teaching, blind kind of to his teaching, deaf to his teaching. He began to oppose him also in this place. Judas chose his path of betrayal, and Satan was more than happy to help where needed. And that's, and that's the case. We, we choose often betrayal. We choose resistance. There's not this undue influence on us that causes us to choose as though we're just automatons. It's, it's, the, it's the action of man here who is being fully involved in betraying King Jesus, and Satan is he's a little bit more than along for the ride. I mean, immediately after the wonderful words of the new covenant that Kale spoke of last week, stands these words. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. This is the blood of my new covenant for you. So much joy. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on this table. Certainly disconcerting for the disciples, right? A tad bit confusing to them. They start look, look, looking around, they pull their hands off the table, you know, and they start looking at each other. You? You? Is it, is it me? 
Every single one of them, save one, looked around somewhat incredulously, wondering, trying to guess. Matthew actually records the disciples all asking again Jesus, uh, asking Jesus if it was them. And even Judas, in his utter hypocrisy, he was filled with Satan at this point. So he was not only resisting and rejecting and opposing and, and, and to- entirely apostate, he was filled with Satan in this moment, and he looks Jesus, the king, the omniscient one, in the eye and says, me? It couldn't be me. With the 30 pieces of silver in his pocket. No one suspects Judas. I mean, Jesus knows, right? But no one else has a clue. Now, there's a couple of frightening things here. First, that there truly is someone who's going to actually betray the Son of God. Shocking. This is the Son of God, the Creator, the one whom all things were created and have their being. So, someone's going to betray him. Yes, absolutely. And secondly, that that betrayer could be actually someone that he had chose to be his disciple. Someone around the table. Someone, someone who professed faith. Someone who followed him up until this point. Now, those things don't seem possible, but the reality is it's entirely possible. In fact, it's not just possible. It was the truth of the situation. Betrayal is brutal. Betrayal is dangerous. Uh, Betrayal is murderous. Betrayal is destructive. Have you ever been betrayed? Not to the extent that Jesus has. No one has. But if you've been betrayed just a little bit, you know that it's, it's terrible. And Jesus' purposefulness along the path of the last three years seemed in this moment like it was going to be derailed. Betrayal meant trouble. Betrayal induced fear. And and rightly so. So Jesus betrayed by by one around the table? An inside job? There's no way. I mean, how how confusing was that to them? How disconcerting? How, How hopeless? But Jesus continues here. He says in verse 22, the Son of Man, there's the foreword as well, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. In this verse, we just come to an absolutely huge doctrine that we could spend a long, long time on. In this brief little verse, we're made aware of the fact that Judas is entirely responsible for the sinful acts he's about to commit against the Son of God. Entirely responsible. But we're also made aware of the fact that God has previously determined that this betrayal is going to take place just as Judas is going to carry it out. there's There's no time for Jesus to explain the depth of the mysteries of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. It's just true. Like as Joy said yesterday in the women's meeting, it's true because he who said it is true. He who said it is truth himself. He stated this with no qualifications whatsoever. We might like wrestle and try to figure it out and everything. And Jesus just states it. May we come humbly under the Word of God this morning and every day. 
So the, the latter reality that, that we're made aware of the fact that God has previously determined that his betrayal will take place as Judas will carry it out, that latter reality of the predetermined plan of God that Jesus will, in fact, be betrayed is where we find hope amid the confusion and despair and fear and anxiety of this betrayal. Looking at the betrayal, out of control, fear, anxiety, what in the world is happening? My world is turning upside down. Jesus says, predetermined. I have a plan. And it includes this. It's not the first time we've seen something like this. This statement, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Didn't just turn it for good. God actually meant it for good. Where's the last time or one other time, anyway, we see it specifically, but Genesis 50 with the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph's brothers hated Joseph. They despised Joseph. They betrayed Joseph, and they sold him into slavery in Egypt. They were wicked, wicked brothers, ruthless, except for maybe one who felt a little guilty, but still sold him into slavery. At least they didn't kill him, but they kind of may as well have killed him, except that it was not God's plan for him to be killed, but to actually go to Egypt and save the very people that killed him, that wanted to kill him. Story plays out. Won't take time to go into the full story. If you want to read it, it's the latter part of Genesis. As it plays out, what we read, when it all comes around at the end, is we hear Joseph say this. This is the authoritative word of God, not just Joseph, is the authoritative word of God. He says to his brothers, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me. Truly, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, it'd be right and good for us to consider the centuries-old conundrum regarding God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, but I don't want to get sidetracked any more than we already have this morning. The truth of both things is all over Scripture. And, And because it's been all over Scripture, we've spoken about it on various occasions, and we will continue to speak about it on various occasions. If you have more specific questions on the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility, I would just encourage you to go to our website, go to the sermon series called Distinctives, and, and re, uh, watch or listen to the sermon called Reformed Theology. And you will get, hopefully you get maybe a little bit of more help concerning this specific thing. The complex yet really entirely simple point that Jesus himself speaks of here is that the betrayal, his betrayal, has been previously determined, as has all that's going to happen in the hours to come. As we know from Peter's message in Acts chapter 2, determined by God, God's plan including the wicked and free choices of people like Judas, people like Pontius Pilate, people like Herod, people like the Roman... um, uh, soldiers and, and whatnot, the Pharisees even. So of all the things we could consider here, things like the potential of, you know, a, a heart of betrayal being in someone like you or me, a heart of betrayal and someone sitting around the table of fellowship, putting on spiritual airs, all the while really truly rejecting and opposing the Son of God in their hearts, 
These are certainly things to consider by, by way of implication of this text. The, the main thing I want us to see here is that even in the actual betrayal of the Son of God, an act that happened in real history, real time, real geography, the confusing, shocking, ruthless, brutal, sinful, and satanic opposition to God, in the midst of all that stands the eternal, faithful, steadfast purposes and plans of the eternal one. And it is so specifically to speak Kale's words last week to save you. The disciples were certainly confused on this night, even though they'd heard it from him time and time again. The events of this night, including the betrayal, were going to happen. But you know, a day was coming when they were going to look back, like we do today, look back um, on, on all that happened at the Last Supper. They're going to look back and, and remember and, and proclaim his death until he comes. There, there is no death of Christ without the betrayal. There is no salvation for us without the betrayal. See, the beauty in the betrayal, there's no beauty in betrayal except for that, except for the fact that God is in control of it and he's making a plan. He is, he is working out his plan, his eternal plan and purpose to redeem a people for himself to dwell with. The path of discipleship for the disciples continues to wind along difficult and sometimes confusing paths, and the faithfulness and sovereignty of Jesus that they had come to finally believe would provide hope for them as they endured other hardships. And the same is true for you and I today. And perhaps your path of discipleship feels confusing. You're following Jesus, but it's like totally confusing to you, especially difficult maybe right now in these days. You may not be dealing with something as big as the betrayal of the Son of God. I mean, it's, that's, a, that's pretty enormous. But you nonetheless are left confused about the difficulty that you're currently facing in your, in your health, in your family, in your, your parenting, in your marriage. Look to the faithfulness and absolute sovereignty of King Jesus. There is hope to be known and experienced amid the confusing path of discipleship. And our path may be confusing, but the Lord of the path is steadfast, and He's faithful, and He's immutable, and He's omniscient and loving and, and caring, and He's worthy of our trust. And He is not just absent. He is with you. He's with you on the path as one who fully empathizes with you and calls you to trust Him and rest in His unshakable plan to keep you and present you blameless on that final day. No. I was thinking this morning, if he would secure your eternal salvation through the predetermined path of something like betrayal, and all that was to, and all that was to come afterwards to the Son of God, how much more will he take care of you along the path of discipleship? He is with you, friends, along your path, the confusing path. He knows you. He knows your path. He's with you. Jesus would have you and I know that in him there's hope amid even the darkness of betrayal. Second point, there's hope despite pride. 
Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? You, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, consider the movement of this conversation. It, it begins by each one of the disciples considering if they might be the one who betraying Jesus. Shocked pulling their hands off the table, looking around, and incredulously saying to Jesus, according to Matthew, is it, is it I? Is it, I? It, can't be. it can't be me. It must be him. Is it him? Is it him? Is it him? Well, it can't be me because I was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. I'm a special. I'm this, I'm that. See, it just kind of devolves from, from the Lord's Supper. This is the cup, the new covenant in my blood. But there's going to be one who betrays you, or betrays me. And the disciples start getting like super defensive. And then all of a sudden their pride starts to rear its head. And they begin to argue about who the greatest among them is. Jesus just said someone's going to betray them, betray him. Jesus just said that he was going to sacrifice. This is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is spilled for you. This is the new covenant. There's going to be someone who betrays me. I'm better than you. I'm better than you, Philip. This is just ridiculous. But is this not what pride is? Is this not every, fu not every fight, almost every fight between a husband and a wife? There's usually something dumb, at least at the beginning. Again, not always. They were filled with themselves, how great they are, how great they, or how much they would deserve this or that or the other thing. They were self-saturated, and we, if we're honest with ourselves, should know something of that. Now, if we were in the place of Jesus, uh, we might imagine ourselves pretty discouraged, Three years with these guys. Just told them some really amazing things. They're arguing about who's greatest. But uh, that's not what Jesus does. That's maybe what we would do, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus sees, Jesus knows precisely what these disciples, excluding Judas, of course, would become in some 43 days from then. He doesn't grow weary with them, but teaches them. He cares for them, and he proves himself faithful to them. And King Jesus hasn't changed amid our pride, amid our lostness in missing the beauty of God's glory and seeing all this and being, being kind of just real fickle into self-defense and self-pity and, and trying to make much of ourselves, Jesus is patient with us, and he's gracious, and he is helping us grow. The first thing Jesus reminds them of here is that they, as his disciples, are to be different than the world. 
That's true today as well, of course. Those who follow Jesus, that is his disciples, learners of Jesus, aren't to strive after greatness the way the world does, but rather to fight against those natural inclinations to, to try to make yourself great. I was just talking about this with Kale the other day. And how quickly, how quickly I want to seek after man's praise. Anybody else like that here? So quick. We're called to seek humility and seek servanthood. He says in verse 26, um, not so with you, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Now, now we don't read this in Luke, but we do in the Gospel of John. See, at this point in the text is where, in in the timing of things, is where Jesus would, would begin washing his disciples' feet. And here's what he says in John chapter 13. He says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taken a towel, tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you don't understand now. That's true. But afterward, you will understand Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. The Simon Peter uh, said to him, well, then not just my feet, um, wash my hands and my head also. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, speaking of Judas, he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord, master, sovereign, if I then, your Lord, master, sovereign, teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. I mean, what kind of faithful teacher is Jesus? Crazy faithful. Amazing. Amid the arguing, amid, I mean, so there's all the argument going on, right? And Jesus, in, in this time period, walks over, picks up a towel, and he begins to serve these guys and show them an example. It's remarkable. Amid the arguing, amid the pride, amid the utter foolishness, Jesus himself does not lord it over them. Stop it, guys! That's ridiculous! He serves them. If anybody could have lorded it over the disciples, Jesus was the one, but rather he served them. He shows what it means to care for others and to serve. And it's all a bit confusing to the disciples. This is a new path that faithful Jesus is charting, a a path that has the greatest in God's kingdom, being the one who serves, not the one who claims he has the most power, the most prestige, the, the greatness. He states in verse 27, who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at the table. Of course it is. Everyone knows that. But no, it's not. I among you, I am one among you who is a servant. I... I serve. 
He reveals that it's the one who serves who's the greater, and he shows us that he is the greatest of all. Yes, he is the greatest of, it all, of them all, and he shows it by serving. And he was going to show them even a greater act of serving when he was going to walk away in just a few moments in the text to go to Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane, to be ambushed and betrayed, arrested, convicted, and killed on the cross. He said on another occasion in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says this, even the Son of Man came not to be, ser- came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that, my friends, is the hope we have amid the error of our pride. Disciples can be really messed up, people. That while we're still walking in pride, while we're still his enemies, he served us by dying on the cross for us, giving his life as a ransom for us. Now, after serving them, Jesus immediately refocuses the disciples' attention on the coming kingdom. He says this in verse 28, You are those who stayed with me in my trials, and I assigned to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, way too much to go in to this morning regarding this, but suffice it to say that it's clear that the apostles are going to judge the tribes of Israel. And, and they will share in Christ's authority and enjoy that consummated kingdom. But the thing I want us to see here this morning is that the key that Jesus identifies for their inclusion into the kingdom is that they are those who persevere, those who stick with Jesus, those who stay with Jesus. It's not their greatness. It's not their greatness. It's their humility. The humility to stay with Jesus amid the sorrow, amid the difficulties, amid the confusion. To be included in the kingdom, eating and drinking at the table of Jesus uh, is on account of their proximity to Jesus. They've remained with him when, when all others have gone. They, they love Jesus more than they love stuff. Now, in just a few short hours, they're going to scatter, strike the sheep and strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. But once Jesus is raised from the dead, I mean, just read Acts. Everything changes. They stick with Jesus through thick and thin. The risen Jesus. Their faith will be unshakable. Their focus on greatness will be covered over with the greatness of their faithful king. They will be counted among all those who persevere, who stay with Jesus through the trials, through the difficulties. Now, amid the proud disputing of the disciples getting up all in each other's face, who is the greatest among them, stands the humble, faithful one, ready to serve, happy to serve, happy to teach, and happy to train, happy to shepherd, to lead them, to guide them, to guard them, to, to even pay the penalty for their pride, and to promise them that the kingdom is theirs. They imperfectly persevere in their faith and trust in Jesus. This, this is our Jesus. He does not grow weary with us. He does not grow tired of us. He helps us, causes us, encourages us, strengthens us with the power of the Holy Spirit to persevere and to stay with him in the middle of the sorrow, in the middle of the difficulties. Amid our proud ramblings and actions stand our faithful Savior having 
served us perfectly in his life and death, who is now resurrected, who is now ascended, who is teaching us and guiding us, patiently working with us, being our good shepherd and telling us things like this from Luke chapter 12, verse 32, that says, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, here Jesus does not grow weary of our tendency to think of ourselves. Have you thought of yourself this morning first before someone else? If you haven't yet, it's not bad. It's like 20 after, or 20 to 12. It's going to happen. Somewhere along the line, you're going to think of yourself before someone else. Jesus does not grow tired of you, of our foolish posturing. Rather, he gives us an example to follow in serving one another as we continue to persevere with sure hope that on the final day we'll also be ushered into the consummated kingdom to eat and drink at the table of our faithful king. Now, again, I was just thinking this morning of of all these churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, to the, speaking to the church in Ephesus, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God, to the church in Smyrna, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Pergamum, uh, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on a stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Thyatira, um, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and on and on. To the church in Sardis, the one who conquers will be clothed us in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Philadelphia, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And even Laodicea, especially Laodicea here at the end, I will, um, uh, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This, this is good news for us, friends. If we persevere by the power of the Spirit and the presence of Jesus walking with us, he would have us know there is hope amid the midst of our pride in the midst of our struggle against sin. Third point, there's hope despite blindness. And consider that amid all the arguing, all the teaching, all the confusing statements about Jesus' body and blood, Jesus cleaning their feet and His promise of the kingdom to come where they'll be judging the 12 tribes, tribes of Israel, the disciples were just super stoked about whatever was coming their way. They're like, bring it on. Man, we're gonna, we're gonna go. They're so excited. They had no idea. They had no idea whatever was going to come. They were up for it, except for actually what happened. They were up for, they were up for whatever. They could, they could cope with it. They were so sure of, of the fact that they were going to be with Jesus and they were going to help Jesus do his thing. That they were intent to argue about it. And it wouldn't be surprising if Peter was the loudest one of the bunch. He certainly was going to be the spokesperson for the early church in Acts chapter 2, but he was unaware of that now in this moment. He had no idea what the next few days would bring. With, with faithful, gentle shepherding, Jesus tells something Peter could hardly, um, tells something to Peter that he could hardly have understood at that time. And he says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now simply put, Satan demanded to put Peter to a serious test, to shake his faith. Um, 
And of course, this is what Satan does. This is why we're to resist him, because he's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So what he does. But for Peter particularly, Jesus warned that difficult times were coming. Peter and the other disciples, for that matter, were blind to the ploys of the enemy, blind to the difficulties to come. And Satan's intention is to destroy Peter and all disciples of Jesus, but the faithful one, King Jesus, has other plans. He has other purposes that will not be thwarted, as we spoke about two weeks ago. So in verse 32, Jesus states matter-of-factly, as though there is no question of the outcome whatsoever, he says this, but Satan's demanded you sift you like wheat. And it's going to happen. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, one of the beauties of this is that we see the certainty of the intercessory prayer of King Jesus. Satan demands to be given power to try to strip Peter of his faith, likely in a very similar way that Satan asked for permission from God to test Job. Now, by the way, Satan has no authority to demand anything from God. But just as God knew the path and outcome of Job's struggle, Jesus knows Peter's path. And he prays with precision and omnipotent, omniscient certainty. You listen to these wonderful words in the text, when you have turned again. Yeah, yeah Peter was going to fail. Well, we, we know he's going to fail in just a few weeks, a few hours. But faithful Jesus is praying for him, and his repentance is sure. And it's sure, not because Peter is certain, not because Peter's got it together, but because Jesus is faithful. It's sure because as sure as someone betraying Jesus was in the sovereign plan of God, so is the certainty of Peter, having been humbled through satanic sifting of his faith, turning back entirely to Jesus, leading the early church, and strengthening the brothers. Nevertheless, Peter was blind to all of it, or, or deaf at least. Peter was too busy with being impressed by his own commitment to Jesus. He's going to go with them anywhere. He's going to go with them even to death. That's how sure Peter was. But, but Jesus knew, not nah, you're going to falter. Satan was, in fact, going to sift him. And he was going to, in fact, deny him three times before the rooster crows. And we'll talk about that in just a few short weeks. You, you can imagine Peter in this moment, um, super stoked, blind to what was going on, um, maybe a confused about what Jesus had said about his body and blood and, and, and the betrayer and he was thinking about all sorts of things, whatever. And he's like, I'm not going to leave you. There's no way that that's going to happen. I love you too much. I'm absolutely committed to you. But in just a few short hours, we see Peter breaking down in tears as he hears the rooster crow three times. And in Luke's telling, if you've ever seen the Jesus film, which is based on Luke, Peter looks up and somehow in the geographical situation, Jesus looks, looks at him right in that moment, looks him in the eye. The sovereign king, the faithful one, so committed to, and you just betrayed him yourself. 
Have you ever had a revival of heart? Those days where, man, it's like everything is, spiritually, everything is firing on all cylinders. I mean, there was a day for me a number of years ago, like five years ago, whatever, I think we were going through Acts at the time, and I remember holding on to my Bible like it was the most precious thing on the planet. It is the most precious thing, but it's like, like I knew it. I felt it. I only wanted to read God's Word. I didn't want to watch hockey anymore. That's how, that's how much of a revival it was. it was. It was just like, it was so wonderful. And I couldn't imagine not feeling like that. And then the day come, comes, and I wake up, and that feeling is absent. Other things started getting in the way. Maybe it's a temptation. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's a lust. You know, we, we know what it's like to be like, oh, gung-ho about something, and then all of a sudden you fall, and it's like, was that, like, was that even real? It was real. It was real, and it's going to be real again. And the thing that's in between that is the very real faithful Savior who is guiding you, staying with you, keeping with you, Right now, Peter was blind to his coming failure, deaf to the voice of Jesus warning him. Whatever Jesus was talking about, Peter knew he's going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. I'm not going to cave. I'm going to go with Jesus right to the very end. And he would, but not on that night. On this night, he's going to deny Jesus just as Jesus foretold. And yet even prior to Peter's repentance... And prior to his reinstatement, as they walked along the sand together, there is Jesus in this moment, not only stating that he's interceding for him, but speaking in such a way as to communicate certainty that Peter will indeed repent, he will indeed turn, and will strengthen the brothers. This is, this is the activity of King Jesus in your life. He is working in you, and he is going to produce, in Peter, he's going to produce a new heart of repentance to run back to him, to turn back to him, to move to him. He is with you and he's for you. Peter couldn't see it, but Jesus with omniscient certainty does. One pastor, Lincoln Duncan, helpfully states this. He says, do you understand that that's the difference between Peter and Judas? In the end, both of them were tempted in points of weakness in their personal experience, and one believed and one never repented. But underneath the non-repentance of Judas and the repentance and the faith of Peter is the prayer of Jesus. And we don't understand how at all times we stand in the need of the intercession of our Savior. See, it's not just that He died for us. It's not just that He was raised for us. He ever lives to intercede. He is whispering into the Father's ear, keep her from sin. Keep him from breaking, Lord. Keep their faith from falling, Lord, from failing, Lord. Bring them to repentance, Lord. He is ever living to intercede. And the one thing that stands between us and an ancient personal evil of incalculable power, the enemy of our souls, and our souls is Jesus, is Jesus' intercession. But his intercession is more powerful than that ancient evil. Jesus' prayers are invincible for his people. There is no power in the universe that can equal Jesus' prayer for his people. There, there is hope amid the blindness of a disciple. We, we simply don't see clearly. Our faith gets rocked, and, and we find ourselves surprised. We find ourselves shocked. We read promises in God's word of, of difficulties in this life, of temptations and trials and sorrows and struggles and temptations and griefs and sickness and even death, but we live sometimes as though none of that should be our experience, and we tend to lose uh, hope amid the confusion of our situation. 
I've heard it recently uh, in a couple of different uh, situations where somebody would say something like this, I just don't understand why this would happen to so-and-so. She's such a good person. Or, 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 or he has done so many good things, served, so, served God so much, and, and on and on. But, but listen, Jesus remains gentle and gracious and patient and loving, kind, and will continue to help us understand the words of Peter in 1 Peter 5, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is the promise from King Jesus. Through Peter, who in this moment in our text is like, I'll go with you the whole way until like three hours from now, and then I'll deny you three times and feel terrible for three days. And until that day, when he confirms us, strengthens us, establishes us, Christ Jesus, listen friends, hear this, Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, we feel like our prayers just aren't working. If you're like me, feel hindered in your prayers, you're discouraged in your prayers, you wonder if they're just kind of hitting the ceiling and bouncing back down. Jesus is always interceding for you. No matter how you feel about the situation, no matter how much you think your prayers are only hitting the ceiling, Jesus, the Holy Spirit as well, but in this text, Jesus is interceding for you, and, and his prayers are always effective. His prayers are always powerful. His prayers are entirely invincible. He always prays precisely according to God's will. Victory is certain. Friend, the hope we have amid our sometimes blind, faithless, self-sufficient meanderings is that even still King Jesus knows us and he intercedes for us and will present us blameless before God on that final day with great joy. One, one brother I know um, said something along the lines of this. I, I know God is able. The question is, will he do it? Is he going to do it? Is he, is he going to heal? Is he going to deliver? That question is just, is just there for us. We know there will be a day of healing, final healing, and he may very well heal today as well, which we pray for. But Jesus, when he prays, he is always certain because he prays according to the will of God for you. In your pain right now, in your sorrow right now, in your struggle right now, in your difficulty right now, Jesus is praying for you. Do you feel loved by that? He's not left you alone. Last point, I'm going to try to make this relatively quick. There's hope despite stubbornness. He said to them, when I've sent you out with no money bag no, or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak, buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and here's the scripture, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said, that's enough. In the three years Jesus has been with his disciples, the disciples have seen 
Jesus provide for them abundantly on numerous occasions. You think about the 4,000 feeding, the 5,000 feeding, and all, all sorts of other times. He now turns to them, and he asks them to confirm that. Did, 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 you, did I do all that for you? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. We were never without need. Well, they've had food, they've had clothing, they've had a place to lay their head, but now things are changing. The first change, Jesus isn't going to be physically with them. If they walk, they're going to need to provide for themselves. Feeding the 5,000 is not going to continue um, as much as he might want it to. But the second change is more important than that. Jesus says in verse 37, I tell you that Scriptures must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And Jesus is telling them right here, right now, the prophecy of Isaiah from over 600 years ago is going to be fulfilled in me within just a few hours. And he tells them this right now to prepare them for what was coming. And he's kind in doing so. He's facing such a huge trial that's coming his way in just a few hours, but he's wanting to prepare for them, uh, prepare them for this trial uh, that they're going to encounter. He's preparing them for the trial that they're going to experience as he, Jesus, is going to be counted among the criminals. They, it was out of their heads. They, they've been told the numerous, numerous times what was going to happen, but they couldn't. I mean, there's, again, it's just this confusion. You're going to be counted among criminals. What? What? And Jesus is going to be hanging on a cross in less than one day from now in our text, condemned as a criminal, hanging between two thieves, counted as a criminal by the religious leaders, the Roman officials, and the people of Jerusalem. And he's preparing his disciples for those hours that are going to seem so very confusing to them. And he's telling them, don't be surprised. Don't be taken off guard. I'm telling you now, Friends, just like I've done on a few other occasions on our way to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. It's not an accident. This is the plan of God, and it's going to have its fulfillment. And amid all of what Jesus is saying, all, amid all of what Jesus is preparing them for, amid all of what Jesus has done over these three years regarding what was coming in the future, what is it that the disciples focus on? Hey, we got a couple swords. After all that Jesus had taught them, all he had shown them, they just kind of remained stubborn in their thinking that he was going to start a new day in Jerusalem. And, and two swords were going to help him out against a legion. You remember what James and John said when they approached the, the one town of the Samaritans? Lord, do you want to just call fire down from heaven on them? And I don't know if you remember that, I mean, I, I made up the tone kind of like, I don't know that Jesus was as snarky as I I'm going to be, but it's like, it was just like, no, let's go. And I think it's kind of the same tone here. It's not like he's saying, two swords, okay, yep, that, that's going to be enough. I think, I think when Jesus says that's enough, I think he's like, that's, okay, let's, let's go. Let's get on with this. Take, grab the swords, fine. We kind of know that because like when he gets to the garden and one servant uses this, you know, he says, stop. Don't use the sword. My kingdom is not that. He continues to teach, continues to care, continues to lead, and amid, amid just stupid things disciples say. You said a stupid thing recently? Man, I mean, come into my house, and, and you'll, you'll hear me say all sorts of stupid things. It's not true. See, she says not true. Um, but I tend towards just... You know, we tend towards just being stubborn. 
Church has always been filled with stubborn disciples. Perhaps it's the stubbornness of a poor attitude or an opinion uh, that holds sway over everything else or a propensity to being closed-minded as it, as it, as it pertains to non-essentials. They, these are not things that are primary doctrinal areas or ultimate truth came, uh, claims. They're, they're often side issues that become primary issues in one's life. But the good news is that there is hope amid the stubbornness that exists in us. Jesus continues to teach the disciples. He continues to teach us, to care for us, lead us, continues to adjust, continues to prepare you and I for the difficulties and the joys that lay ahead on the road to discipleship. And he stood condemned for you and I and counted among the criminals for you and I. Um, Now think about just this phrase, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I'm thinking he's got to be looking around at these guys whom he loves, and they're counted among, I mean, they're, they're the criminal. We're, we're, we're the criminal. It's not just the two guys on the cross. It's us. The reality is following Jesus as his disciple is sometimes confusing. It's disheartening, isolating, difficult, and, and you and I feel it. As a man, as a woman, a, 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 a mom or a dad, a college student, a, a teen, a kid, whether your struggle is with health or a family concern or a marital concern or a cultural concern or some sort of spiritual concern, no matter who you are this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, the path of discipleship is sometimes rather confusing and it's rather difficult and sometimes we're, we simply lose hope. But all along the way of the disciples meandering, in this text and beyond. Their pride, their failures, their stubbornness, we've seen Jesus stay with them, teach them, lead them, promise them, protect them, prepare them, provide for them. And on this last day of his pre-resurrection life, he will serve them by giving his life for them. And he does the same for you and I today. Amid all of our meandering, amid all of our pride and failures and stubbornness, Jesus is ever faithful, He provides, He protects, He keeps, He guards, He fills, He loves, He intercedes. And before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea, a a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for you and me. our, Our names are graven on His hands, our names are written on His heart, and we know that while in heaven He stands, no tongue can bid us thence depart. Friends, look to the faithful provisions of Jesus to find hope amid the sometimes confusing path of discipleship.